please take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know that from chapter 20, near the end of John's gospel, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That by believing, this is the conundrum of Christianity as over against all religions, that our eternity is dependent upon belief. It's not only true that all other religions, in order for one to receive eternal life, are dependent upon conduct, really dependent upon achievement, dependent upon good works. It is also true that all pseudo-Christian beliefs are rooted in one's works. And so you ask the question, what falls within the pale of works? Everything except for belief. It's by belief. It's by believing the truth. You shall have life if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now along with that, the reality that Christ means anointed one, the Messiah... There is the necessity of his prescribed or prophesied death, 
that certainly atones for sins and his subsequent resurrection that certainly proves his victory and power over sin and death. That is what the Messiah would and did accomplish. So for the person who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he believes in the person of Jesus, but he believes in the work of Jesus. A lot of times people will say things, you know, Jesus is all I need. That's not true. It sounds noble. It's certainly sentimental. You don't just need Jesus. That might be alarming. But you need Jesus and his efficacious work. You need what he accomplished as the Son of God. You need to believe in it. The Greek term is pistos. Our term in English that is more closely related to what's intended by that term is not belief. It's trust. You're resting. You're finding not only solace, but utter and complete joy. It's complete dependence. Because you're certain of what Christ has accomplished. Therefore, in the event that your faith is challenged, you're not tempted to rest in what you've done. Because your hope is in what He has done. But this is all too often the argument amongst those who profess to be Christians, my hope is in what I did. My hope is in my initiation of the exchange, my initiation of the relationship, what I did, a prayer or you know, some kind of decision. And you've heard me say it many, many times. I'll say it again. Those things are not in Scripture. Uh, prayer is in Scripture. <laughs> but the sinner's prayer is just not there. And so many, many people have found false hope in this sinner's prayer, they found false hope in a prayer that they prayed. They found false hope in a decision that they made. And the result is a lack of sanctification. They're not growing. And, but because that false theology of how the transaction supposedly took place and the false theology that one can be a Christian and have nothing to do with Christ, those two false theologies feed and nurture each other. So long as I believe that my Christian faith was initiated by my actions. And so long as I believe that to be a Christian means that I don't really have to look like a Christian or have anything to do with Christ, those two false heretical theologies feed each other. And that person, until someone lovingly comes along and corrects that non-reality, continues to live in false security, a false sense of hope in a false gospel. And I suggest to you that the person who gets the angriest when he hears what I just explained is the one who is in the most desperate condition because he is living a life of self-righteous, false conversion. And he pridefully and angrily wants to believe that he accomplished what Jesus did not. He wants to believe that Jesus accomplished it so that anyone and everyone 
could complete what Jesus didn't do by responding. And the reality of Scripture shows over and over and over and over and over, man had no ability to respond. Therefore, God gets the glory. Well, what we see here in the book of John, particularly in our study this morning, is the beginning of that transaction. We don't really know at what point the disciples were saved. There's a lot of argument about that. We don't really know. We know that they have an interest in the person Jesus Christ. Jesus says to them, what are you seeking? He didn't say who. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, who are you seeking? He says, what? Because he knows they're seeking something. But a lot of people will use that very passage to say, see, they were seeking Jesus Christ. doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. He asks them, what are you seeking? It just, you know, when you look closely at Scripture, it really destroys this man-made theology that man wants to believe in because he pridefully wants to believe that he should get credit. God says, I won't be mocked. I won't allow my glory to be had by another. From John 1, verse 6, let's go back there for a moment. John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That's a pretty clear mission statement. Why did John the Baptist come? that all might believe through him. John wanted to see all men saved, as Paul did. Prayed that all the Jews would be saved, Paul did. Verse 8, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now stop there. We pointed out when we were in this passage a few weeks ago that there is no grammatical dependence here. This is not a dependent clause. Grammar in Greek is critical. He is not saying that as a result of those receiving him that he gave them the right to become children of God. He's simply saying that both happened. And we know, therefore, not just because of the grammar, but because of verse 13. He's not saying that the person who received him was given the right to become children of God as a result because he then says that they were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. It was not man's will to receive him in and of himself, but the passage says of God. Grammar is important. Some of you have been in circles where proof texting is lauded. It's praised. Proof texting is when you take a passage that has nothing to do with what you're talking about, really, certainly doesn't prove your point, and you quote it so as to prove your point. That's what often happens with John 1.12. See, there you go. Everyone who receives him, and then they change it to the word accepts him. It's not in the Bible. There's never a command to receive Jesus or accept Jesus. It's just not there. It bypasses. It circumvents the process by which people are actually saved. People are, are saved by repenting and believing in the gospel. That's the command of Jesus. Oh, if, if so many, many, many people would just get that right. 
then we would really so much more be on the same page. But it's the the rampant and passionate efforts of so many pulpiteers to preach this idea that you just need to come down the aisle having been emotionalized or sensationalized to do so and then pray this prayer, sit with a counselor, we'll fill out a card and you're in heaven. No. You need repentance and you need belief in the gospel. And so frequently the gospel is not even a part of the recipe. Verse 19 we see the beginning of a three-day record where John the Apostle tells us of John the Baptist that he was interrogated by priests and Levites sent by Pharisees. The immense religious popularity of John at this time as an Old Testament prophet but a New Testament preacher created a stir, to say the least. And the religious leaders sent messengers to determine who he was. The next day, according to verse 29... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did. He did take away the sin of the world. Now, the point where one would superimpose into this word the idea of every single person in the world, he has to reject the theology of what John has just declared. Jesus did take away the sin of the world of the world. It doesn't take but a quick reading of Revelation 5 to see that what's being addressed there is that there will be those from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, those throughout the world. That's what the term the sin of the world means. That some from every nook and cranny of the world will be saved. Jesus died for them. He propitiated for the sin of the world. 1 John 2 tells us. And so it was efficacious. It was certain. It wasn't a gamble. He accomplished it completely. Were he not to have done so, he didn't die for anyone. It's critical here to know what John means by the word world. If he meant every single person in the world, then John would be a universalist meaning that all sin of every single person in the world would have been taken away, but it wasn't. This morning, we pick up in verse 35 with day three in this narrative record. You see or so that statement in the bulletin. I want to read it to you. This morning, we'll see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we will lead people to him. Should we not? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you have eternal life, would you not want to lead people to Jesus? Of course you would. See, this is the reality of Reformed theology. When you really begin to see the reality of what Jesus has certainly accomplished, you can't keep your mouth shut. But in the moment that someone accuses you of having this robotic theology, you say, wait a minute, you've confused hyper-Calvinism with biblical theology. We do not believe that because God is sovereign, we do nothing. We believe that because he is sovereign, we must do everything that he's called us to do. We are to obey every command of Scripture and the command of missions 
in which our church is passionately and heavily involved, and the command of evangelism in which our church is passionately and heavily involved. Worldwide and locally. Some would say, well, what does your local missions look like? You're looking at it when you look at each other. If you're walking faithfully with Jesus Christ, you're having an impact on the dying people around you who will certainly ask, 1 Peter 3, 15. And our duty and our privilege is to respond with gentleness and reverence for that person, being prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us to everyone who asks. We're to be in the community, serving, living faithfully, humbly, gently, graciously, passionately, so that we'd have that influence. That's why the so that statement is what it is this morning, that we would lead people to Christ in light of knowing that everyone, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, will in fact inherit eternal life. We ought to be telling that message every opportunity we have. Instead of getting angry with those, here's what a man-centered theology will do to you. It will make you angry with those who haven't accomplished what you accomplished in your pseudo-Christian transaction. If you believe you initiated it, you created the handshake between you and Jesus, if you believe you did that, you will simply be angry with everyone else who hasn't done that as evidenced by their conduct that you don't like. On the other hand, you rest in the sovereignty that you see throughout the Scripture. You live faithfully for Jesus Christ. You obey him. He sanctifies you. You're looking less like self, more like Christ. You have increasing opportunities to communicate truth to those who hate you but don't understand why you don't hate them. See that? A man-made theology leads you to hate those who hate you. A biblical theology leads you to love those who hate you. And you know there's a sense in which there's really not anything they can do about it except repent and believe in the gospel. How do they do that? From faith to faith, Romans 1.17. By the communication of the gospel from one man to another, from one woman to another. In the body of the text, in verse 35, it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. This is his second time of saying this, as you know. The two young disciples here are Andrew, as is explained in verse 40, and John. We know this is John because only an eyewitness could give such detail as the exact hour of what he was recording. John the Baptist was pleased to usher these disciples from his discipleship relationship with them into the hands of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Who wouldn't? You see, the discipleship relationships in which you're involved do that if they're faithful. That's what discipleship's for. You're leading people to Christ. You say, what if somebody already knows Christ? You keep taking them back to Christ. You want them to see Jesus. You want unbelievers to see Jesus. That's evangelism. You want believers to see Jesus. That's discipleship. And the lines are blurred, believe me. Because there will be times where you think someone's a believer, it turns out they're not. There are times where you think someone's not a believer, it turns out they are. But to be faithful to both at the same time. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They heard him say, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the plan and outcome of, of effective discipleship. To be discipled 
is to be led to Jesus, to follow him and to become like him. John would say in chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. There was no tug of war here, no battle for followers. John, these are mine, those are yours. John's work was to introduce them to the Lamb of God, not to simply produce clones of himself. We always think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, who said, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. But the ultimate idea is not that they're to be a clone of Paul. The idea is that as he imitates the Lord, they would imitate him unto that imitation. In verse 38 in our text, it says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? This would have forced them to define their purpose and explain it. The best they could conjure up was, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Really not much evidence of having thought through a whole lot of what they were doing. Maybe they were nervous. Maybe they were even intimidated. But all they could think of to say was, where are you staying? Why? They wanted to be near him. They wanted to follow him, to be near him wherever he was staying so as to have extended time with him. How do we know they wanted to follow him? Because they followed him. He said to them, come and you will see. Come is the call of Jesus more than once. In chapter 7, 37, he says, come and drink. In chapter 21, verse 12, he says, come and dine. Warren Wiersbe says, come is the great invitation of God's grace. To those who would follow Jesus, he says, come. To these Jews exposed to and perhaps at one time imprisoned by the slavery of the Pharisaical system that would have required them to earn their salvation by works, Jesus would have said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. And you know this, so often this passage is used for people who are just tired. They're, they're just not feeling well. You're exhausted with life. Come to Jesus. He will energize you. That is not the point. Go to the spa for that. Get a massage. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary with an unbearable burden. The burden of legalism. The burden of self-righteousness. That burden separates the false convert not just in conduct from the true convert, it causes him to always be frustrated with the true convert. Because the true convert is saying, no, it's grace by which we are saved through faith. And the false convert is saying, but my works, but my decision, my prayer. In the Old Testament, it was my circumcision, and even into the New Testament, 
It was this. It's what I did. It's my fulfillment, not Jesus' fulfillment. See, just prior to what I read to you in Matthew 11, in verses 25 to 27, he reveals why they would come. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The gospel is scandalous because it requires a childlike faith, not an adult faith that says, no, no, I got to do something to earn this. Jesus goes on in verse 27, Matthew 11, to say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Our passage in John 1 goes on to say, So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. In Roman time, it's ten o'clock. In Jewish time, it's four o'clock. The Jewish day would begin at six o'clock, so for them the tenth hour would be four o'clock. I say it's more likely four o'clock because John's a Jew. Some speculation about that because John's mostly writing to non-Jews, and there are times where he explains his Jewish terminology with Greek terminology. But the natural explanation of what time it was would have probably come out of his own time zone or his own time description. But it says they stayed with him that day, and the idea is that there was a an appreciable period of time during which they just spent time with him. I remember a pastor years ago when I was young in the faith. In fact, I was first in seminary, and um, the question of what is discipleship came up. And his explanation might have been a little too loose, but it's definitely in the right direction, and it is spending time with people. It's investing in people. He said, look at what Jesus did with the disciples. And he went on to point out to me that there were really 12 men that he poured himself into. He taught the multitudes, and he taught a smaller group than that from time to time, but he really poured himself into 12 men, and really he poured himself into three men, Peter and James and John. But he really poured himself into one man, John. The point is not what time it was. The point is that John knew the time, and the point is that a substantial amount of time during the day was given to Jesus by these two disciples and given to these two disciples by Jesus. And that's discipleship. It's going to look different in different people's lives. I, when I teach in Grace Advance, uh, these men that are going out either to pastor struggling churches or to plant a church, I, I talk to them a lot about engagement with people. You know, pour your time into leaders, shepherd the shepherds. That's how to build up a church. Nurture men who would nurture people. Be a shepherd to the shepherds who will shepherd the sheep. And I kind of boiled that down to three A's. Three A's. Approachability, availability, and activity. So you can be approachable to everyone. You should be. Every Christian should be approachable to anyone, everyone. You can't really be available to everybody, at least not all the time. 
can only be available to a certain number of people. And so in our efforts to nurture that, we've developed the family groups that I talked about. But then you're active in an even smaller number of people's lives, really, at least for most Christians. You're really active in a few people's lives. Again, family groups for us. And many of the men in our church and the gals as well have multiple ministries that they're involved in. So they're pouring into many people other than just their family group. But for the most part in our church, it comes down to really pouring yourself actively into a few people's lives. That's what discipleship looks like. It's what it looked like for Jesus. Jesus wasn't discipling women. You say, what about Martha and Mary? No, he was their friend, but he wasn't discipling them. There was certainly some teaching there. But he wasn't spending time with them, teaching them how to be godly men. He was doing that with men. Look at Titus 2 if you want to see a real practical theology of discipleship. Men with men, women with women. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Man, there is no larger statement on the planet than that. Brother, he's here. We found the anointed one, the Christ. The one who's going to save our nation is here. They may have thought him to be a political figure. Certainly the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Levites, the scribes, they were expecting either a political leader to come in persuasion or a military leader to come in power but he's convinced Andrew's convinced and so what does he do he tells somebody he tells somebody I found the Messiah I found the Savior he loved his brother Simon enough to go and tell him hey there's practical theology right there Right? You do that? I think you do. You look for opportunities. You pray for opportunities. You mess up opportunities like I do, you know, from time to time. You don't want to do that. You want to tell people. I remember there was a time in my life, I'm guessing most of you had this time in your life as well. I hope it's not now. But I had this time in my life where I felt like every gas station I pulled into, I had to tell, you know, that guy pumping gas next to me about Jesus. That's not the call of evangelism. That's really manipulation from someone who just wants you to bring more people to their church so they can hear them preach. Sorry, that's just the reality. It's not to say that it's wrong to evangelize the guy at the gas station. If you're ready and there's time and you have an opportunity to share truth with that man, then do it by all means, but don't be compelled by guilt. Don't be compelled by guilt. What are you going to say to him? I say spend your time in relationships because guess who did that? Jesus. Discipling men, pouring himself for three years into men. Again, you see that same structure. You see a a, a real clear structure in Titus 2. He brought him to Jesus. There's a lot of stuff we can unpack with that little phrase, but this is physically. (laughs) He literally took him to the person Jesus. You can't do that, but you can certainly take people to Jesus. Do that primarily by how you are faithful to the Word of God, being sanctified, being conformed to His image. 
He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas is an Aramaic term. Peter is Greek. Simon is Jewish. Jesus reserves the opportunity to call him Simon in the future. Simon was a common name. Peter, of course, means rock. He was really calling upon Peter to be unique, not like all the other Simons out there. There's a lot of Simons in the Bible. There's a lot of Simons in that era. But Peter means rock. It's more unique. But the idea is that he was calling upon Peter to be a rock, not the pope. Forget that. Total misuse of Scripture. There's no pope in the Bible. Peter means rock means strength, means one who would be strong in the faith. And Peter was not. And then he was. He would later say, Simon, (laughs) wait a minute, I thought my name was Peter, Rock. I don't want to have that common name. Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you. Oh, Lord, please now, come on. Yeah, you're acting like Simon, so I'm going to call you Simon. Simon, are you sleeping? You should be praying. Can you not pray with me for an hour? Oh, Lord, don't call me Simon. The last time the Lord called Peter Simon was after he asked him three times if he loved him. Peter would ultimately prove that he did. Well, this was uh, the disciples' first exposure to Jesus. It was not the point at which they would drop everything and follow him. That's recorded in Matthew 4, beginning with verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed them. So there was an initial introduction. That's the way it works. There was more interaction. And ultimately there was a willingness to give up everything to sit under his leadership and to follow him. Luke 9 tells us from the words of Jesus, if you are to follow me, you will deny self. Take up the cross and follow me. It's a willingness to die, really. It's a willingness to give over ownership of everything to another. That's what it is to deny Self. Jesus would uh, later say, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not unusual for a person to be exposed to the true Christ and for a substantial amount of time to go by before the actual conversion takes place. He might be following in one sense and even appear to be seeking after him 
while he actually doesn't know the true Lamb of God, there might be an intrigue, and you see that in the New Testament. There's an intrigue of the multitudes. And what happens? They're praising him. Hosanna, you are the king of Israel. And what do they do? They leave him. The line between evangelism and discipleship is often blurred for two reasons. One, it's difficult to be certain that a new convert is a true convert. And two, it's difficult to tell if a new false convert is actually a false convert. But time is the wind that drives away the mist of uncertainty. John says in 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there's a distinction, but sometimes that distinction is blurred, especially in the early days of conversion and especially in the early days of false conversion. In the parable of the soils in Luke 8, verse 12 Jesus says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Speaking of the seed that's thrown by the sower. He goes on to say, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while And in time of testing, fall away. It's a time of testing for the disciples. There was an initial interaction. Ultimately, they showed themselves to be devoted to Christ. Oh, but then there was one who was not, although he certainly appeared to be. In John 6, 35... Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's just an amazing conglomeration of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Let me read it again, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's condensed, reformed theology. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jude 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Down in verse 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. 
Amen. To him who is able to keep you. It doesn't say to the one who's able to be kept by you. We sing a great song. He will hold me fast. I was sitting here in the front row with my little boy one day when we were singing that song. He says, Dad, why does it say fast? Did he grab you real quick? The idea of holding fast is that there is no speed at which it can be interrupted. He holds you fast. He will not let go. It's permanent. It's decreed in eternity past, and it will not change. Verse 43 of our text this morning. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Here Jesus proactively pursues Philip, setting a tone for discipleship among them and for us to follow. Can I just be real clear about this? There is no such thing as Christianity without discipleship. It does not exist. You're playing a game. You're pretending. If you're not pouring into others, and or being poured into by others. Jesus said, follow me. In verse 44, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel was an Old Testament maniac, a student of the Old Testament. Luke 24, 25 says, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Romans 1, beginning with verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Nathaniel would have known the underbelly of this theology, knowing that the Old Testament prophets and Moses would speak of this person who would come and accomplish what he had set out to accomplish, and that would be the salvation of those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? If you're from where I'm from, you would say, can anything good come out of Asbury, Missouri? Asbury was a little bitty town that nobody ever even went to because, you know, you just didn't want to go there. First of all, 
if there was anything there, wasn't worth going to see. Now, that might be real offensive to people who lived there. That's just how we thought about it. I don't think I ever went there except for one time for a basketball tournament, and I really thought the gym we were playing in would fall down on us any time. What good could come from there? Philip's response, the words of Jesus. Come and see. I'll show you. Come and see. I'll show you what came out of Nazareth. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That's rare. Nathanael was unlike Jacob, also known as Israel. Jacob was deceitful, bamboozling his brother out of their father's blessing. Nathanael had no problem speaking honestly about the condition of Nazareth. Thus, the description, there is no deceit, or as some of your translations say, there is no guile. I remember a, a friend of mine years ago, uh, as he and I were getting to know a mutual friend, he said about this person, there is no guile in Bryant. That was helpful, and I found it to be true. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. It wouldn't have been unusual for a young Jewish man to study the Old Testament Scriptures under the shade of a fig tree. Jesus penetrated Nathanael's heart because he knew his heart. Well, he created his heart. It said in Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jesus didn't need to have some vision to know that Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree studying the word of God. He created him. He was omniscient. He knew his every thought. Nathaniel would have known from Psalm 2, verses 6 to 7, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Using the same terminology that he used here, the Son of God, the King of Israel, as used in Psalm 2. He would have known Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He would have known of that coming king, the master, the ruler of Israel. He would have known Zephaniah 3.15, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. In John 1.31, I myself did not know him, John the Baptist says, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. The one over which he would be king and he would be mocked by them. But he would say, yes, it is true. Just as you say. I am the king of the Jews. 
John 12, 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Oh, it seems so great. They get it. He's the king of Israel. But not very far down the page. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They had just praised him as the king of Israel, and now they're turning away from him. Even those who believe in him are scared to say so. The idea that he has blinded them is a response to their blinding themselves. The one who sees with human eyes sees a false gospel and he embraces it and thinks he has eternal life. But when God opens his eyes, he no longer wants his own glory. It's the glory that man receives when he believes on his own in a false gospel that keeps him believing that false gospel. He wants his own glory. Verse 50 of our text this morning, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You see, Nathaniel was prepped by the Old Testament to believe the New Testament. You'll see greater things. He goes on to talk about one of them in verse 51, where he says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In Genesis 28, verse 12, we read, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This was that dream that Jacob had. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's the promise. The promise of multiple descendants, a work of the Lord. The ladder upon which angels ascended and descended was a type of Christ. For the disciples to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man is for them to see God bridge heaven and earth with this human ladder, the Messiah, 
the Christ who came to give rest to tired souls, weary from trying to climb their way to heaven through the law. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The disciples would see Judaistic, legalistic, false converts granted passage into eternal life in heaven through their discipleship, but only if they would be involved in discipleship. Only. Thirteen times Jesus refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the Son of Man. He does so more than 80 times throughout the Gospels. He uses this term for himself more than any other term. It's a reflection of Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The phrase, son of man, speaks of his deity and his humanity. He is the son of God who is the son of man. He is the incarnate God-man. He is the Messiah, the one who would come to be king of Israel, to be the son of God, and to be the hope of the world. He would be the savior of sinners, he would be the savior of the world as proven by those being saved in every nook and cranny, every tongue and every tribe and every nation. For everyone who believes that he is the Son of God, everyone who believes that he is the Christ, the Son of God, to them he has granted the right to become children of God. In fact, he has granted them eternal life. If that's you, if that's me, how can we not tell our biological brother? How can we not tell our neighbor? The only answer to that question is that whatever it is that's happened in our hearts hasn't had the impact that it would have had had we actually believed in the Christ who is the Son of God and received eternal life. For those who have been forgiven... There is a passion for granting forgiveness. And that comes through the vehicle of the one who has died for the sins of those who would be forgiven. Let's worship him. Father, we rejoice that you have given us the King of Israel, the Son of God, the God-man. And we pray now, Father, that our worship to him would be pure and that the result would be that you would be pleased, that we would be strengthened for encouraging each other and equipped for ministering to those whom we would lead to Jesus. It's in his name we pray.